electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and here's what's ahead. No growth, no progress, no problem. The markets are unfazed by slowing job growth and a stimulus package that's currently stalled. But there are some under-the-radar data points that are looking a little better lately. We'll have more. Plus, Buffett, the banks, and bonds. A top analyst gives three reasons why banks aren't as risky of a bet as many investors currently believe. And Facebook takes on TikTok, a restaurant reality check, Disney soars as Mulan goes digital, and a match made in COVID. That's all ahead of us today, but we do begin with the markets. Dom Chu is back with those numbers. Dom. Rally on, game on, whatever you want to call it, it's intact. Four-day winning streak right now, Kelly, for the S&P 500. You can see they're up about 18 points. That's off the highs of the session, up a half a percent. At the highs of the day, we were up roughly 24 four points for the S&P 500. The Dow Industrials, a 300-point gain, up 1%. And then the NASDAQ actually lagging today. Call it that, lagging, up only about a one-third of 1% here. One other big trade to talk about on the macro commodity side of things is what's happening with oil. Because the prices that you're seeing here for U.S.-based West Texas Intermediate, up 2% right now, $42.57. Earlier in the session, we got to the highest levels that we've seen since March 6th, believe it or not, before the full effect of the virus pandemic. So keep an eye on crude energy stocks, by the way, soaring on this particular news here. And then we've got two of the IPOs of the day, a tale of two of them moving in opposite directions. We'll start with Rackspace Technologies down 19 percent. You can see here it priced its IPO at 21 bucks a piece. It's down big. Meanwhile, Big Commerce, an e-commerce company here, is up 223%. It priced its stock at $24. Watch those particular IPOs. Some big news there. It's not all hot, and it's all, not all fun and games in the IPO market. Kelly, back over. Yeah, here. but certainly if you're a platform like Shopify, Big Commerce, uh, it is... Uh, at least it is today. Dom, thank you very much. Let's move on to private payroll growth. We just found out that it slowed in July as COVID cases spiked across the country. The ADP number this morning coming in well below estimates. Still, the June number was revised sharply higher. That continues a recent trend. Steve Leesman is here to break the numbers down for us. Steve. Thanks, Kelly. A big miss on the ADP jobs report for July. That confirmed concerns the economy slowed in the month. ADP rising by just 167,000. That compares with an estimate of 1 million. Uh, The uh, June number was revised up, however. It doesn't really tell us that much, in part because uh, they immediately true up, ADP does, their number to the prior BLS report. So there's the numbers, 167,000. Estimated was 1 million. June revised up. The good, the good sector was up by 1,000. The services sector up by 166,000. And there's the non-farm payroll estimate, 1.5 million or so. A lot of guys saying there's some uh, risk to that forecast. The report showed job losses in medium-sized businesses and in construction and finance. There were job gains in leisure and hospitality and in education and health services. It came while other measures, for example, the ISM service report showed growth in Breen Capital. John Riding writes, the picture is one of economic activity picking up faster than employment. And while we expect payrolls grew in June, this report adds to the view that there is a risk of a negative print 
for the month. J.P. Morgan's Daniel Silva wrote, we think the ADP report suggests some downside risk to our forecast for the BLS. They're looking for one and three quarter million jobs and also reinforces our view that the economy has lost momentum in recent weeks following a period of strong growth. We found at CNBC that neither Wall Street nor ADP has done a very good job predicting the jobs numbers, but ADP has done a better job. For the four months of the pandemic, they're off by 7.5 million. The Wall Street consensus off by more than 14 million. Finally, in the exclusive interview, today Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida said he was sticking with his forecast for a strong three quarter, third quarter rebound, but he cautioned the longer the pandemic drags on, more risk, Kelly, there is for permanent damage to the economy. Yeah, and I like how John Riding put that to say activity appears to be picking up faster than job growth and, and manufacturing and the services surveys both showing that, Steve. So I'm curious, where are we on estimates for GDP growth in Q3 and Q4 after being down 30? What's the latest thinking there? Okay, so here's the tail of the tape. Minus 5 Q1, minus 32.9 Q2. Uh, we're looking for 21% in our rapid update for the uh, third quarter and 7% for the fourth. Put it all together and the expectation is for a 2020 being down 5%. All right, which given everything that's happened isn't so bad, but still one of the worst uh, downturns we've seen. So plus 21 in Q3, yeah. we'll see if it stays there after all the July numbers come in. Steve, thank you very much, sir. Steve Leesman. And job growth may be slowing. We're also nowhere near a deal on stimulus yet, but markets continue to climb higher. The Nasdaq setting another new high today. The S&P is just 2% away from its. Let's dig into what's really going on. Joining me now are Brian Belsky, the chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets, and Michael Yoshikami is CEO of Destination Wealth Management. It's good to see you both. And Brian, to me, at least the manufacturing, the services number is pointing more in the direction that markets are pointing to. You know, there is some data out there that says this economy still has momentum. Yeah, great point, Kelly, and thanks for having us on. I think the ISM number was especially important, especially given the fact that, you know, the services economy has been strong. We've seen consumer discretionary as a sector continue to lead. You know, the month of July with respect to stock performance actually was more flat than most people, I think, remember, especially with this back and forth action in terms of should I be a value investor, should I be a growth investor, what's going on with tech, and a lot of the rhetoric kind of scaring people off of the market. It just seems to us, Kelly, that most of our institutional clients are looking for reasons to not own the market hmm. instead of owning the market here. And that's not surprising given how much we've seen the market go up. But really, this what a lot of people like to talk about, this high frequently, high, I'm sorry, high frequency data continues to increase. And I'll just also caution, too, uh, that employment data is a lagging indicator. And Mr. Leisman did a wonderful job kind of explaining the ADP volatility longer term and how bad the street has been, quite frankly, in hmm. terms of looking at employment data. So I focus less on employment data and more on the services and overall economic data that actually has been better than everybody expected. Yeah, you say you're still bullish, bottoms of stock picking oriented S&P 3500 by the end of the first quarter of next year. Michael, I'll turn to you uh, because all of this is, you know, kind of talking about the economy that we already have in front of us. It could all change in a heartbeat if we get better vaccine news. And at least on that front, there's a sense that we are, you know, there's so many different possible options here. The government's throwing funding at this. There's a lot of different candidates, and hopefully one of them bears out. Uh, and in all likelihood, one will bear out. I think this is really, Kelly, a time for you to really ask yourself, what is your time horizon, right? If your time horizon of the next three months, then you're going to end up being uh, like all those that have incorrectly um, been predicting job growth, 
because the short term, it's really hard to guess. What really actually matters, and this is why the market is up, something we talk to our clients about all the time, market is up because everybody is looking to spring of next year. That's really actually what matters. And if you look at spring of next year, as Steve Leisman was talking about with the up and down on the GDP where we're down 5%, you had mentioned that's not that bad overall. If we're down 5% and then we have a positive uptick in GDP next year, uh, it starts to make the market look a little bit more rational. So you got to look and decide what you're investing on. If you're investing for the jobs number in the next two weeks, who knows? If you're investing for April of next year, there's a lot more certainty. And Brian, it definitely goes back to, I mean, we had some more uh, negative news on the cruise line front today, delays and when they can embark. Uh, we talked to Tillman Fertitta about this all the time. The picture does not look great for the restaurant sector. Um, but that said, it's not the whole economy. And there's other parts that are showing uh, when, when you start to get into next year, uh, being able to look past this. It really isn't the entire uh, economy. And remember, too, from despair comes hope. And every single bear market we've had, every single recession, we've had new leadership. So we're going to have new restaurant concepts. We're going to have new retail concepts. We've already seen a lot of these begin to develop. We know the cruise line industry was an industry that had problems before COVID. And they're going to have problems coming out of COVID in terms of how they're going to manage. The same thing with the airlines. And remember, too, if you take a look at the restaurants, the airlines, and the cruise lines, in terms of just their percentage with respect to how they make up the market, it's very small. So we want to look at really what's leading the markets. There's going to continue to be these strong consumer discretionary companies like Amazon, but other companies as well that play lifestyle themes like Lululemon. But also, I think too many people have tried to, quote unquote, diss tech. You got to be careful on tech because you want to maintain core positions. Certainly, when tech spikes, you want to bring it back to your core position longer term, but you should not be selling tech at these levels. And Michael, you agree with that, right, about tech? Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. I think that uh, the tech that should be, should be an anchor in a portfolio strategy. Uh, and I also think there's a number of other sectors that are really attractive right now, healthcare, and believe it or not, financials. I know there's a, a huge concern that there's going to be lots of bankruptcies, uh, and lots of credit problems. Uh, but that's pretty much, I think, baked into financials at this point. And even though interest rates are going to be low, which means low interest rate margins, net interest margin, uh, I think you're going to see financials who are already fairly strong, given what we're seeing in the economy right now, are going to be a place to invest. Well, we are about to talk about that exact topic. So we'll leave it there. Brian Belsky and Michael Yoshikami, thank you both today. Really appreciate it. And we'll move on to Warren Buffett making a bigger bet on the banks. He just bought another 85 million shares of Bank of America. That's $2 billion worth in just the past 12 days. The stock is up nearly 10% during that time. It brings his total stake to nearly 12%. And my next guest says the big banks, including B of A, have more room to run. Joining me is Mike Mayo, the senior banking analyst at Wells Fargo. Mike, it's good to have you. And I mean, it's nice to hear. We are just sort of more objective. Not that you're not objective, but you know, when you're a banking analyst, you know, there's some there's some favoritism there. My point is when Michael Yoshikami says he's looking at financials, when other people say there's value there, you know, how much value might there be given all of the headwinds facing this sector? Well, we think that bank stocks have the potential to increase by 50% over the next 18 to 24 months. I think it's underappreciated just how much heavy lifting the banks are doing and how they'll be able to pump their way through this. And uh, banks are experiencing 
four 100-year events at the same time. The decline in the net interest margin, the worst in 100 years. The decline in traditional banking revenues, the worst in 100 years. The decline in total revenues, the worst in 100 years. And the buildup of reserves has been the highest in history. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about heavy lifting, banks right now have a level of reserves for problem loans equal to half the level actually experienced in the global financial crisis. So, you know, we think that the foundations are strong and earnings could be like a coiled spring um, if and when um, you have more of a, you know, positive light on the economy or vaccine or some other, uh, you know, measures that get the economy going. Yeah, and that answers kind of the first uh, big question people have on a lot of the banks, which is those credit problems. They say, you know, hey, this is just going to be, you know, look at examples from Europe, look at examples from other places where they've been dealing with bad credit outcomes for a long time. Um, I'm curious about the differentiation. You know, obviously, each bank has its own portfolio, different parts of the country, different types of consumers. Would you favor one kind versus, you know, one type of name versus another in this environment? Well, I would like to validate uh, what you just said. These are sobering times. In our models, we have loan losses increasing by about threefold over the next few years. It's just that the reserving for those loans, we think, hit an inflection point in the second quarter that's being underappreciated. But you let off talking about Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett has bought stock in Bank of America for 13 days 13 separate days in the last three weeks. He is a serial buyer of Bank of America. So we think he's on the right track. The largest banks, Bank of America, JP Morgan, and Citigroup, you know, the theme is that the largest banks are capturing more share, especially when it comes to digital banking, and they also have more scale to better control expenses. So even while these revenue headwinds are, you know, once in a hundred year events, the ability to control expenses, we think, will distinguish this recession versus others, as well as the buildup of reserves for those problems is the greatest for any recession experienced in the U.S. So banks have a war chest. They're ready for this. Um, They are strong. It's really the the one word for banks would be strength. Yeah, it's like those... uh the weights behind you. Uh, so a 50% rally over the next 18 months. Mike Mayo, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. With his call on what he sees ahead for the big banks. Coming up, the global pandemic has shown the power of innovation in everything from finance to biotech. Ahead, we'll speak with Square's co-founder about that and more. Plus, Facebook is hoping to reel in TikTok users as it launches a rival, Instagram Reels. Can it be successful? And how important is it to the future of both social platforms? We'll discuss right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back. The coronavirus has disrupted life as we know it. And with other past crises, this is forcing millions of people to seek new solutions using innovation and technology. We're seeing it across many industries, including the development of vaccines. Joining me now to discuss this is Jim McKelvey. He is the co-founder of Square, which began during the last recession. And he's the author of the innovation stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. Jim, it's good to have you. What crazy ideas are you testing out in the vaccine world? So um, I'm not a immunologist or a med- medical specialist, but I'm uh, along with a group from St. Louis funding a bunch of research at Washington University's medical school uh, that's super exciting. Uh, basically, we have a world-class medical school at WashU, and uh, they asked a bunch of alumni to basically give money to do experimental um, research, and it's going very well. We actually have two potentially a blockbuster vaccine candidates. And almost more exciting uh, is we have a saliva-based test so we can tell if people have the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus or not. Right. And why why this partnership with Washington University, I mean, with the university in general, you know, at a time when there's so much money in biotech companies or these huge uh, sort of top-tier research facilities, what gives you the confidence to think that your contribution and the work here is going to make a difference? Well, um, so first of all, this is not an investment. This was a gift. And at the time we uh, made this, uh, you know, the COVID-19 epidemic was just starting. And we were concerned that if we waited for government money or for traditional investors, uh, we would lose months and months mean lives. So a a group of us got together, gave a bunch of money to uh, the scientists and they got into the labs and started working. Yeah, and people may not know just how strong the program, the medical program, is at Washington University. That may, is one of the reasons why uh, people are hoping that this bears fruit. And if you guys are able to make some early progress, does that tell you that, you know, again, not as a specialist, but as somebody who's, who's active in this space, that maybe it's realistic to think we could have a vaccine for the coronavirus, you know, within the next six or 12 months, you know, something along that time frame? Six months actually does sound reasonable based on the scientists that I've talked to. And uh, we're probably not going to have one of our vaccines out before the end of the year. But um, the the animal trials have been going exceedingly well. uh, And we've got two candidates that are uh, giving us a lot of hope. Yeah. So let's pivot, talk a little bit about what some of the innovation we're seeing in the fintech landscape right now as well with coronavirus. Um, It is a great user experience. I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening on this front that I think was a long time coming. What I'm wondering about is how much more power is fintech and the payment space going to have as we come out of COVID? What does it mean for the traditional banks? We were just hearing the bullish case for a lot of the big traditional banks. And I just wonder, you know, what would you say about the role that some of these startups may be playing? So I think uh, there's been a problem with innovation in fintech forever, and that is basically the big institutions are heavily regulated and they tend to uh, be very conservative in their behavior. So they're not good at developing new technologies. That's typically left to the startups and the smaller companies. Now, there are some great exceptions to this. Actually, Bank of America itself, when it was first founded, um, was a very innovative institution. As a matter of fact, they pretty much invented what we now think of as modern banking. Uh, But once these institutions get large, uh, they can't keep the pace up anymore. So they have to work with startups. Sure. And again, you sound like you're bullish on maybe Bank of America. But do you think this ultimately helps the existing banks do business better? Or is it a situation where, you know, hey, while we were all busy dealing with the pandemic, the next crop of financial behemoths is growing right under our nose? Yeah, so I was actually not bullish on Bank of America today. I was bullish on Bank of Italy, which was what Bank of America was called about 100 years ago. (laughs) Um, And it was actually one of my case 
studies for the innovation stack because they were super innovative back then. Um, right now, what I'm seeing is is a pattern that's that's been repeated throughout history, which is during times of chaos, um, innovators have an advantage. And it's, it's a relative advantage, Kelly, because, uh, look, innovation itself is chaotic, but if everything else is smooth sailing in the rest of the market, then the innovators face an extra hurdle. But if the entire world is somewhat disrupted, then the innovators are going to make progress relative to everybody else. Yep. And we'll see, again, some of the positive that can come of that uh, once we get through the other side of this. Jim, thanks so much. It's good to speak with you. Always a pleasure. Jim McKelvey is the co-founder of Square. Coming up, ExxonMobil will reportedly suspend matches to its employee retirement plans amid this crisis. Will it be the first of many companies who follow suit? Plus, our quiet climber, an under-the-radar name today that's rallied 235% from its 52-week low and has no sell ratings on the street. We'll tell you what it is. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets with the Dow's up nearly 300 points today. So a strong picture here, even though this morning after the ADP number first came out, things looked a little bit weaker. So we've certainly climbed since then. Strong ISM services report definitely helping some vaccine news and so forth. The Dow's up more than 1%, powered by Disney as well today, by the way. The S&P's up half a percent. The Nasdaq up a little bit less than that amount. Quick look across the sectors, too, tells you there's only three in the green, uh, in the red, I'm sorry, today. So it's a pretty broad-based rally. We're led by materials, surprisingly, some different leadership for once. A 2% gain there. Industrials and financials right on the heels. Tech in the middle, up a quarter percent today. Consumer staples, real estate, and utilities are all lower. And here are some of the individual names that we are watching. Boeing is actually the second best performer on the Dow today. The company saying it doesn't see an immediate need to raise cash with new debt. Investors responding by pushing the shares up more than 5% to almost 174. And Etsy is in the green ahead of its earnings tonight. Expectations are high. This stock is up 242% this year. It's been a big beneficiary of some of the pandemic-related products that it sells. Uh, Etsy
see up three and a half percent. And the airlines are also continuing their climb. This sector has been in the green for the past couple days now after TSA data showed a bounce in travel demand that snapped a two-week dip. Uh, the airlines up about 2% on all of that news. Now let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Virginia has rolled out a smartphone app to automatically notify people if they might have been exposed to the coronavirus becoming the first state to do so. The COVID-wise app created by Apple and Google notifies users who have likely been exposed so they can reduce the risk of infection. Florida has now reported more than 500,000 cases since the pandemic began. The state reported with more than 5,000 cases, 225 deaths on Wednesday alone added today. Today is the 11th day that Florida has reported under 10,000 cases. The U.S. Tennis Association has reduced the overall compensation for players at this year's U.S. Open. Both the men's and the women's singles champions will earn $3 million, down 22 percent from the top prize last year, and part of a decrease of nearly $4 million in total player compensation. And the United Nations is ramping up relief efforts in Lebanon, meeting this morning to coordinate those efforts following a deadly set of explosions yesterday. Lebanon's economy minister says the country's main grain silo at Beirut's port was destroyed in the blast, leaving the nation with less than one month's reserves of grain. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. I'll send it back to you. Yikes, that's just awful. Sue, we appreciate yeah, it's it. It's a terrible yeah. story. Yeah, no, for sure. Thank you for keeping us posted. Sue Herrera there. Well, I'm over here. Let's get to today's quiet climber, shall we? Today, we are looking at Avantor, ticker AVTR. The stock is up slightly about 1% today. This is a company that provides products and services to customers across biopharma, education, pharmaceuticals, among other sectors. The products are everything from equipment and chemicals to vaccine components. There you go. It does business in 30 countries with 12,000 employees. It was just recently added to the Fortune 500 list. Currently has no sell ratings on the street, a market cap of about $12 billion. It's 52-week low. It was down to $6 a share. It's since recovered to about 22 bucks, and it's up 235% from that 52-week low. There's a story on Avantor. Coming up, Facebook's TikTok competitor goes live, a restaurant reality check. Disney soars and makes a bold move with Mulan, and love was in the air during the pandemic. It's all ahead in rapid fire. Also, shares in Nicola are falling today after results, and founder and chairman Trevor Milton was on Squawk on the Street earlier. David Faber asking some tough questions, including when we're gonna start seeing something beyond a promise. Here's what the CEO said. We're a pre-revenue company. We told everyone from the beginning of the year, look, give us till the end of this year. Like it doesn't, you know, people want us to be Tesla in our first three weeks debut of like, we want, you know, we want all these trucks on the road right now. That's not gonna happen. Look, we're gonna have the first zero emission truck, you know, coming into production in the world. It's coming out of our factory in Ulm, Germany now. We have five of them built. Um, they're gonna be testing over the next four or five months. And we have them in the hands of customers next year and full deliveries at the end of next year. That's ahead of everybody, even our competition. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines are Kate Rogers, Dominic Chu, and Julia Borston. Welcome, everybody. First up, the big news of the day. Facebook-owned Instagram launching its competitor to TikTok today, and it's called Reels. It'll let you create 15-second videos using filters, AR, and music. 
importantly, which is just like TikTok. It's now available in more than 50 countries. And because it's embedded within the app, it has the built-in base, Julia, of Instagram's 1 billion plus users. Can I do, like, try this now? Well, yes. I don't know if it's on your phone right now. You might need to refresh your app, but it will be available to everyone very soon. It takes a while to roll out these changes. But one thing that's really interesting, Kelly, is you don't have to download another app. This is part of Instagram. Facebook has had challenges in the past when it's copied other popular features in separate apps. People have not necessarily wanted to adopt them. It tried something similar to TikTok with, a, with an app called Lasso. Because this is part of Instagram, this is really about getting people to stay hooked on Instagram, spend more time on Instagram, where they, of course, will see more ads. Yeah. Uh, Kate, what do you think about it? Well, so it's so interesting Julia brings up Lasso. I actually had never even heard of it, and I am a big Instagram user, so I think the idea of rolling it out within Instagram, of course, is a smart move. Also seems a little more talent and dance and music focused, less beauty and fashion focused, which is what Instagram is so popular for. And obviously, TikTok is the big elephant in the room, right? What happens with TikTok? Uh, it's future in the United States kind of in limbo here. My question would be, would TikTok stars move over mm. uh, to this new feature on Instagram? And would their audiences actually follow them? Because they're two very different and separate platforms. Yeah. And Dom, we know that there have been reports back and forth about you know them trying to pay to poach, both TikTok poaching people from other networks and then the platforms like Instagram doing the same thing for reels. And, it, you know, if it does work, I wonder if Facebook goes to the U.S. government and says, you can just ban TikTok altogether. There's somewhere else people can go. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that they want to make that kind of a case. I'm not sure from a PR perspective if that's the kind of way that they want to go. But you bring up a great point in that when it comes down to creating the content, you want to have people around the ecosystem. And for a lot of these social media applications, it is about funding developers, content creators, application type, type people. So if you do spend the money on it, I wonder if Facebook doesn't have the balance sheet and the resources to be able to pour enough money into Instagram Reels yeah. to have people actually make the content there and make it a really viable competitor to what's happening with TikTok. Julia, the other interesting thing this tells us or, or kind of reminds us is how much social media has matured. You know, you, there's plenty of people in Silicon Valley who could launch a TikTok rival tomorrow, but nobody would know about it or download it. You basically have to be one of the big four, like any other industry, if you even want your rival app to have a chance. That's why Reels might have a chance, but anybody else could have done this. It's just that it'd be hard to get the word out. Well, look, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out there is an app called Triller. It is a TikTok, very similar to TikTok. I won't call it a TikTok copycat, but very similar to TikTok. And they actually have been luring over some of the TikTok stars, some of those creators. But I think the key thing here with Facebook is that it doesn't necessarily need to be exactly the same as TikTok or even have those stars. It just needs to work enough that it that people don't want to leave Instagram, don't want to leave that Facebook platform mm -hmm. for TikTok. It's all about growing engagement, making sure that their user growth stays up. And people really spend time on that platform. TikTok, obviously very popular, and they just don't want people to leave for that. Yeah, it worked with Stories. They just copied it from Snap, and they stopped people from going that way. And Stories... I mean, I only figured it out a year ago, and I'm already bored with the options, so it'd be nice to have something new to play around with. Next up, new data shows the restaurant recovery from COVID-19 still has a ways to go. According to NPD Group, restaurant chain transactions were down 11% year-on-year for the week ending July 26. That's after peaking around Father's Day. It comes as cases and hotspots continue to spike, and that extra $600 a week unemployment benefit just expired. Kate, you've been following this story, and it... 
you know, I think what's interesting is we're starting to see a lot of differentiation across sectors. Restaurant is by far taking the brunt of this pandemic. And I wonder if it ultimately the government's response is going to change as a result. Yes, certainly. The $600 unemployment benefit expiring is certainly on the minds of leaders in the industry. So basically every major company that had reported during earnings so far mentioned higher average tickets because people were spending more money when they went out or they were ordering more at uh, Domino's, for example, to have leftovers for the next day. McDonald's CEO even brought up the $600 benefit to them, saying that it had been a boost when it rolled out. He expected to have some negative impacts uh, when it did expire. So you have to imagine that there is going to be an impact. As you said, traffic was looking better around Father's Day. Some pent-up demand people were feeling a bit more comfortable, uh, but that's kind of shifted now. Data from Alex Partner shows that fewer people are willing to go out and dine out in restaurants, as we've been talking about, even as more and more restrictions had lifted around the country. So major headwinds for the restaurant industry, and I think the $600 benefit is just really the tip of the iceberg here, Kelly. Julie, real quickly, what's like in California? What's the deal with indoor dining these days? Well, indoor dining in Los Angeles, at least, is banned. There is a lot of outdoor dining, and you see a lot of restaurants which have created this outdoor dining space. There was a period where you could have distance dining inside, but really now the focus has shifted to outdoors. But one thing that was really interesting, um, as Kate alluded to, this idea that why people are eating out, why people are ordering out, has really changed. And at first, people were reluctant to because of contamination concerns. And now people aren't ordering out as much because of cost or, or, or dining out because of cost. So it'll be interesting to see how that shifts. But I know that here, you know, we do uh, we do order in, and I have to say, we do order more food to have leftovers. So, yes. uh, Kate, you're right on that one. Yeah, no, if, you, uh, if you're going <laughs> to do it, if you're going to go through the whole process, you got to at least get more than one meal out of it. Uh, how about Anything this? to not cook is my opinion. Kate, 100,000%. I, I totally agree. Uh, shares of Disney are surging today despite posting its first quarterly net loss since 2001. That's thanks in part to strong growth in Disney Plus subscriptions. As of Monday, Disney Plus had over 60 million paid subscribers. So Disney hit that $60 million goal, a million user goal, I should say, four years early. The CEO said Mulan, the live action film, will also debut on the streaming platform in September after multiple release delays. I mean, Dom, I, this, we were talking yesterday about the stock and, you know, what can it do? It just has to kind of wait for the, it's kind of like the restaurant, you just have to kind of wait for the pandemic to get better. Well, no, they've got Disney Plus and they're really leveraging that. Uh, you, you want to talk about the whole social media thing about not getting people to leave a certain application like Facebook or Instagram to do something else. I got to tell you, during this whole pandemic lockdown, I've probably, I shouldn't say I, my family has probably <laughs> used Disney Plus more than any other streaming service that we have. And we have a lot of them. It's more than made up for the cost of it simply by virtue of having some of these platforms and some of these properties on them. It seems like a no-brainer to release a large live-action film that you would have considered a blockbuster before because you have such a captive user base right now. And those earnings reports that just came out showed you how many millions of people are now paying a recurring charge yep. on their credit card to do this. It seems like a no-brainer, Kel. And, Julia, that $30 price point, people don't even care. I mean, I think they could charge anything for Mulan, and they're just glad to have some kind of entertainment. I just wonder, what does the fact that this film is now going straight to streaming mean for the future of theaters? 
Well, it's such an interesting test, Kelly, because remember, it's not just $30 for Mulan. You have to also be a subscriber to Disney Plus. So the question is whether this gets more people to sign up for Disney Plus and whether then how many people want to pay that $30 for Mulan. I've actually been texting with a number of our colleagues about whether they think that's a great deal because it's cheaper than taking a family forward to the movies or whether that's really expensive. So it'll be really interesting to see what Disney learns from this, a very valuable experiment at a time when movie theaters are closed and really a test of consumer demand for this direct-to-consumer premium video-on-demand model. Um, And and Kelly, it'll be interesting to see what Disney does after this, because for now, they reassured theater owners this is not going to be something they do for every movie. For now, this is just a one-off. We'll see whether they stick to that. Kelly, Kelly, you know, it worked for Trolls, right? For, you know, Universal, which is our parent company. It works for trolls, <laughs> what I've got to say. I, but I think I think the key point, as Julia just mentioned, is Disney saying for now, hey, guys, it's just for Mulan. Well, okay, that's fine, but, Kate, I don't know why that why it has to be. I mean, it it's pretty obvious if this model works going forward, short of, like, litigation by the theater industry, what stops all of these networks from rolling things out on streaming? I agree, Kelly, and it's going to be a while as we talk about with the restaurants, not only for theaters to be fully open and operational, but for consumers to feel comfortable to go into theaters, right, and actually sit near people, even with social distancing measures in place. Not everyone's going to feel comfortable with that. This allows Disney to cast a wide net. I think it's really smart that you have to be a Disney Plus subscriber. And again, I'm with Julia and talking to people about $30. I personally don't think it's a high price tag if you're considering bringing a full family to the movie theater. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I mean, the, the, again, the theater, they're going to miss out on the concession, but that, that experience isn't going anywhere. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's going to be around as kind of a unique thing to go like to the drive-in like everybody's discovering. Uh, but this still mm-hmm. feels like a big inflection point. Finally, Shares of Match Group, the owner of popular dating apps like Tinder and Match.com, are soaring today after beating Q2 estimates. They had an 11% jump in subscribers from the prior year. And an email to investors, Match CEO Char Dubey, implied the company is basically pandemic-proof, writing, our products satisfy a very critical human need, and those needs aren't going anywhere. Match shares are up more than 10% uh, today, more than 12% now, Kate. And we're learning a lot about the ways that people are dating during the pandemic as a result of this. This is the exact opposite of everything I've heard from anyone in in my life that I know who's single who say that they're just not dating right now. So I was actually really surprised to see these results. But I think there is a boredom factor, right? If you're sitting at home and you want to meet someone and you have nothing else to do, and now they have these video features, I mean, why not give it a try? Encouraging. People are still looking to meet people. I think it's a great sign. Julia? Yeah, we just had the CFO and COO of Match Group on Squawk Alley this morning, and he was talking about the importance of video chat. Video has been a huge driver of their growth because now you don't have to wait. Maybe it's a month or two months before you can meet someone in person. He said that's really um, driving engagement. And also now people are starting to do distanced walks and things like that as a date. But video is crucial to make sure that people don't stop dating entirely during these shutdowns. And to make sure, Dom, that people are who they say they are. Yes, I was just going to say you need the video (laughs) feature because you need to see the people in real life because they're not always their profile pics. They're not always what they claim to be in those descriptions. The classified ads are a thing of the past. Put the video proof up there. Maybe put a a copy of today's magazine or newspaper up to your head to show that it's really you on this day. I don't know what it is, but I'm all for the video feature. It's like a hostage video, Dom. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, sometimes it's like being a hostage, a hostage dating. Video. <laughs> Thank you all today. We appreciate it. Kate Rogers, Dominic Chu, and Julia Borston for Rapid Fire. Still ahead, Johnson & Johnson Moderna out with preliminary vaccine pricing today. We're going to dig into those numbers, see what they tell us. But first, this is the time of year college towns should start bustling again. But the ongoing pandemic is transforming them into ghost towns. We're going to look at the financial fallout next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Some schools are starting to reopen in parts of the country this week, but in the area where doors will remain shut, vibrant college towns will be turning into ghost towns. Elon Moy has the story for us and a look at the financial impact. Elon. August is normally when Athens, Ohio comes alive. Roughly 18,000 students would flood into the city to start the semester at Ohio University, tripling the local population and driving the local economy. But this year, the pandemic has put everything on pause. For the first time ever, we have absolutely no idea what to expect. Typically, college students across Ohio spend $960 million a year off campus at places like Brennan's Coffee Shop and Athens Icon. But this college town turned into a ghost town once coronavirus hit. Now, the university is slowly phasing students back onto campus. But owner Jessica Thomas is still preparing for the worst. So we're anticipating um, being down 25% at best, budgeting 30 to 50% down. What happens at the university affects almost every aspect of life in this city. Revenues from the hotel guest tax were down $86,000 after graduation went virtual. The college isn't buying as much water from the city. That's a $100,000 hit. And revenue from parking meters and garages has been cut in half. We have trimmed just about everything we possibly can without having to go down the path of laying people off at this point. But even that is not entirely off the table. And Kelly, it's also worth pointing out that the mayor actually taught at Ohio University for nearly 20 years. The business owner we spoke to, she's an OU alum. So it just goes to show you how tightly connected this community is. And that's fast. I mean, obviously it makes sense when you, are, when you present it, but the fact that the water bills are down and the parking collections are down, I mean, all the little hits to the community. But I'm also curious what the impact from smaller college populations could be on federal funding going forward. Yeah, so one of the problems that college towns are facing right now is that this is also the year of the census. And because there aren't as many students in the town, that means their census town is going to be smaller. So much federal funding is actually calculated based off of that city's population that they're worried this could mean a $40 million hit to the amount of money they would, would receive from Uncle Sam over the next decade. That's so bizarre that they wouldn't be able to account for the fact that this might be a one-time thing. But then what if it's not? What if this all of a sudden does change the landscape for good? Right. So one of the things they're also saying is that they need relief from Washington. I mean, this plays into the debate that we're seeing right now on Capitol Hill over how much money to provide some of these local jurisdictions in any new relief package. The small business owner that we talked to did get a PPP loan, um, but they're worried about what's going to happen in the future and yeah. at what level can they sustain their business and sustain the economy of the small town. Absolutely. Elon, that's a great story. Thanks for being sad, but great. Uh, well done, I'm trying to say. Thank you so much for bringing it to us. Elon Moy in Washington. Thank you.
Sticking with news on the COVID front, the full reopening of schools and economies across the country relies on the development of vaccines. J&J and Moderna both out with preliminary prices for their potential vaccines. I don't know how we get prices before we have the vaccines, Meg, but uh, what can you tell us? Everything is moving in weird orders, Kelly, during this pandemic. But uh, Johnson & Johnson announcing this morning that it struck a supply deal with the U.S. government for its potential vaccine if it gets through phase three trials successfully and gets approved or emergency use authorization. Uh, BARDA will be paying more than a billion dollars for those 100 million doses, uh, implying a $10 per dose price. There is also an option to acquire 200 million more doses um, on top of that. And J&J does say this will be priced at a not-for-profit basis globally. Now, Moderna, during its earnings call this morning, also making some comments about potential pricing, saying that they've struck some small volume agreements at $32 to $37 per dose. So that is much higher than the agreements we've seen struck so far. If you look at the funding we've seen allocated, Pfizer, for example, uh, striking a deal for $1.95 billion with the government, implying uh, a $19.50 dose for 100 million doses. Uh, Sanofi and Glaxo uh, up higher there, uh, whereas J&J there, $10. And we should note that Novavax and AstraZeneca and Oxford, uh, those prices uh, are probably going to be even lower under the implied amount of funding because they also support development and not just the supplying of doses. Uh, But Kelly, it's really interesting to see how these prices are stacking up. They're really all over the board. Uh, And Moderna much higher and hasn't yet struck a supply deal with the U.S. government, Hmm. perhaps because they're looking for such a high price. True. I mean, I'm wondering what the point of these prices even is, if the government's going to ultimately just tell people, hey, here's the price, and effectively, we're the biggest buyer. Yeah, and we're going to have to see what happens with Moderna's ability to negotiate here when you have these other huge companies striking lower prices, and they don't need to depend on these products for revenue the way a company like Moderna does Hmm. when this is its first product. So it's a fascinating dynamic. We'll have to see how these negotiations go based on how strong the data are. No, that's a great point. Moderna would have a lot more at stake. Meg, thank you, as always. Meg Terrell with the latest information. Still ahead, a new platform launching today to help investors gain access to liquidity that would typically be locked up for years. We're going to talk to the company's CEO next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Investors with alternative assets like life insurance policies or real estate are often left frustrated when they can't get liquidity quickly during market volatility. Now the Dallas-based financial services company, Beneficent, is helping investors tap that money. For more on what this could mean in practice, I'm joined by Brad Hepner. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of Beneficent. The platform launches today. Brad, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate your time here today. How will this change the options for someone who needs access to to this money and and usually can't get it right away? The objective that Ben has in changing the way that secondary markets have operated for providing liquidity is to provide it in a rapid way, simple way, and a cost-effective way to individuals. We've been built for individuals. That's the growing segment of investors in alternative assets today. So what's the cut that you guys would take in order for me to... So let's say I have something like a life insurance policy or I'm invested in private equity, something like that, and I want that money. Um, Are you kind of fronting it for me, taking a cut, and then we deal? You know, how how does it work? Think of us more like a bank in which we operate on a spread business. You have an expected return on your asset, and we have a cost of capital. And so we will advance you the cash against your investment, 
And then we earn a spread on the difference over the life of that asset. And you've been in financial services, alternative assets for over three decades. So I'm, you know, obviously you have a lot of experience here. What would you say is the biggest need um, that people have that you want to help them with? And what happens if you're making it easier for them to do financial harm in the long run by maybe tapping something, especially during a market panic, that would be better left untapped? Well, that's a good point. Our business is really built for uncertain markets and our business is built for the individual. The marketplace has been built for institutions over the last 25 years. Individuals have been left to the side and don't have access to liquidity. They have very different needs. Individuals experience more severe financial distress in times of uncertainty like this. Individuals die. Individuals get divorces. Institutions don't have those three types of life events. We started learning about this when the big private banks started uh, offering alternative assets to their wealthy individuals, basically the ultra-rich. We're going to see the number of individuals investing in alternative assets grow from 890,000 households in the United States to over 6 million households in the United States in the next decade to 15 years. That's a huge change in the industry. Those individuals will be investing through their retirement funds. What needs to come along with that is simplified liquidity. The marketplace is built with very complex avenue to liquidity. It can take six months to 18 months for an institution to gain liquidity yeah. out of an alternative asset. And you're trying to do this in as little as 30 days. You basically exchange your ownership in one of these assets for a, a, a liquidity bond, a cash income producing liquidity bond, and your expenses are kind of factored into the underwriting as opposed to being out of pocket. Um, so again, there's other situations here, not just market panics where people might want to do this. They might need money for kids' ed education, for retirement, and so forth. Um, how big do you think this market could get? This market today, if liquidity was available for individuals, would be a $30 billion market. As we grow and move from 900,000 households into 6 million households, it's going to more than double in the amount of demand in the space. We're going to see the demand for liquidity out of alternatives outpace the demand for liquidity by institutions in the next 10 years. This is a very large untapped market, unserved market. Yeah. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for joining us to explain some of the innovation that's going on here. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kelly. Brad appreciate Hefner it. is the founder, chairman and CEO of Beneficent. Well, Dr. Anthony Fauci is speaking right now saying he doesn't think the U.S. will have to go back into shutdown mode in order to contain the spread of COVID-19. Fauci adding that he says we can do much better without fully locking down. He said Americans should keep wearing masks, do physical, dis uh, physical distancing, shut down bars, wash their hands and favor outdoor activities. So again, you can see the market near session highs today up 283. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.